Do you really, really believe in hell? There is a place, a dark place, where ancient evil slumbers and waits to return. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. There are things that go bump in the night, make no mistake about that. And we are the ones who bump back. is now playing's Hellboy Retrospective Series. World, here I come. Hosted by Jacob. Didn't I kill you already? Stuart. Remind me why I keep doing this. Rotten eggs and the safety of mankind. Huh. And Arnie. The good. The bad. And the worst. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and hellish language. Fuck my ectoplasmic schwanstocher! Listener discretion is advised. Hey, hey, hey. playing our son. Come on, Jack. Let's go fight some monsters. Today we're discussing Hellboy. Starring Ron Perlman, Selma Blair, Jeffrey Tambor, Rupert Evans, Doug Jones, and or David Hyde Pierce, and John Hurt, directed by Guillermo del Toro. This is Arn Sapien, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is the host that always looks this good, Jacob. And welcome to our Dark Horse Comics first installment. No, 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 don't say that. I don't want to do the son of the mask. I don't want to do barbed wire. <laughs> Just kidding, sort of. I don't know that we're saying we're not going to do any more Dark Horse, but this is the first that we've done. It's neither DC nor Marvel, so that feels new. And they do have some properties I feel like we might get to, and some that I never want to get to. AVP was kind of Dark Horse. I mean, I think they first did those comics but they were before there was ever a film. Yeah, and I never wanted to do them, but uh, we did. I mean, then that would make Star Wars Dark Horse, or would that be Marvel? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, for Dark Horse, that was... Their thing for a long time was licensed comics. I remember reading Terminator comics and those Alien comics, but they don't have a universe like DC and Marvel. They have independent writers and artists kind of you know they contract them out american splendor had some stuff published by dark horse and now we have hellboy which is its own universe from mike mcnola it's it doesn't tie into anything else it's, we're not going to get a sin city well there actually was a sin city crossover though i think it was like a dream <laughs> of hellboy in one of them didn't Batman and Hellboy crossover? Yeah, I mean, there's a Hellboy, Starman, Batman two-issue crossover. Starman? Yeah, it was mostly a Starman-Hellboy comic. Batman <laughs> barely showed up so they could sell it as a Batman comic. I said we're not talking about Jeff Bridges. I figured we were talking about Jeff Bridges. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, Starman's okay. a great 90s DC comic. But yes, no, not Jeff Bridges, not John Carpenter. Okay. Okay, I thought it was... Since... I know Dark Horse as adapting movie properties to comics. I mean, the first time I'd ever heard of the company was when Stuart and I in high school went to a comic book store and he bought Aliens vs. Predator and he's like, it's Dark Horse. Who? Exactly. They're the Dark Horse. <laughs> That's why they named themselves that. And I think of them, I think of movie adaptations. So you said Starman. I'm like, wow, they got that license? <laughs> 
I think their original characters started popping up a little bit in the 90s. There was Dr. Giggles, if you remember that one. Larry Drake from L.A. Law. The movie is based on a comic? Yep. Yep, that was the first, kind of inauspicious. I don't remember it being very good. And then there was The Mask, yes. I think we all remember that one to a degree. Less so Son of Mask. I remember that one too well. I wish I could have that, like, <laughs> Never seen wiped from my mind. I wish somebody could neuralize me to take Son of Mask out of my head. There were a lot of talk about all these characters, like Flaming Carrot and Concrete, and I think this remained largely just that, just talk. I don't know how or why it became Hellboy, but I had never heard of this character until the it was a movie, until I was seeing trailers. I could tell you why Hellboy. This comic, it started out, it had its early beginnings as just, like, little two-page strips and, like, Comic-Con programs. But in 1994, Mike Mignola got his first four-issue miniseries, Hellboy Seeds of Destruction. I know he worked for DC for sure. He did Batman comics. He did cover work. I think he did some Marvel stuff as well early on. But Gilmore Del Toro is the reason why there's a Hellboy movie. He read this comic. He's like, this is my favorite comic as as an adult. I mean, if, if you want a grand, great, just lecture history of everything from Lovecraft to pulp comics of the 40s to modern comics. Listen to the commentary track for Hellboy. Gilmar del Toro, this was his favorite comic book as an adult, and he had this ready to go in 1998. He was ready to beat X-Men. He he was kind of disappointed that this came out so much later in 2004 because some critics said, oh, this is like an X-Men ripoff with all these weird people running around as superheroes. But he was ready to beat Fox to the superhero game with this film, but because of budget and, and effects and all that, it did get delayed. Yeah, and he wasn't exactly where he is in 2004 to have the clout to command a rather mid-budget movie here. I think this was about $60 million. Yeah, almost $70 million. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a lot of money, really, in any year, but particularly for a director who had only made a couple films. Yeah, it was, dare I say it, the success of Blade Two that gave him the clout? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, I consider Blade Two to be a success. I thought it was a good film, and it was Blade Two that got my attention when I heard Guillermo del Toro was doing Hellboy, and I had not heard of the comic. I didn't know Ron Perlman all that well either, but because it was del Toro, because it was a comic book, because Hellboy looked cool, I decided to give this a shot. I saw it in theaters opening weekend. Oh, come on, Ron Perlman, four seasons of Beauty and the Beast, Linda Hamilton, you have to remember that, early 90s. I never watched an episode. I laughed at it, but I never watched it. Yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> and if you've seen the early Del Toro film, Kronos, which I remember kind of being all right, Perlman's in that. He knew Perlman. He wrote this Hellboy with Perlman in mind. This was designed to be a Ron Perlman movie. Yeah, not to mention he was in the fourth Alien movie as a side character. He was Oh, I'd, I'd seen him, but I just didn't know him. Nemesis, Star Trek. Yeah, I, I think, if honestly, this was his heyday. Honestly, after this movie, I don't really think he's had any more theatrical success at any rate. He, this seems to be the peak of him in front of the cameras. But unlike you, Arnie, I wasn't there opening weekend. In fact, I didn't see this until it was out on video. I had heard of Hellboy. Like, I knew that was a comic. I wasn't 
2004, wasn't really into comics at the time. I, you know, had just gotten married, just graduated college, didn't have a whole lot of funds to go buy funny books. But I remember reading the reviews, and I'm like, oh, this sounds really interesting. I kind of remember hearing about that comic book. So I did see it shortly after it came out on video. Yeah, I didn't watch this until years later on television. Now, my question is, and I've had this question since seeing the movie, and Jacob, I'm going to look to you to answer this <laughs> 12-year-old question. How much of this is actually comic accurate? Especially since this entire plot we're going to discuss is about Hellboy's destiny. Like, the reason he was brought to Earth, who brought him to Earth, what his mission is having been brought to Earth. I mean, I'm thinking of, like, again, Spawn. I, I lump Hellboy and Spawn together a lot because... You know, they're both demons who try to do good things but have evil destinies. Is this all Mike Magnola's original vision here, or is this a story Del Toro came up with and adapted to the character? No, this first film... It's very close to the comic as far as the origin goes, how Hellboy gets to Earth, what his destiny is, what his, his struggle is. People see him, you know, as the bringer of the apocalypse... It's the characterization that Del Toro changes. Like, he brings in love stories. He, the, the fact that Hellboy is kept a secret. That, that's all Del Toro. So the broad outline is close to the comic, but it's the little details Del Toro changes up to shape this story. Man, I would have bet anything that the villain in this was purely his creation. It is straight up Lovecraft, old one gods gear. I was not expecting that. I was not expecting a lot. When you say Hellboy, I presumed he was, yeah, maybe a renegade of Satan and that this would deal with more Christian mythology. But no, this has, I think, mythology that has actually never been done better by any movie at any time coming from the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, Mike Mignola, who created Hellboy and, and is still writing it, still does the art from once in a while, which is nice because I just love his style. But, I mean, BPRD has its own series. That's on 30 volumes now. There's an Abe Sapien series. There's Hellboy in the BPRD, you know, telling the stories back from the 50s. There's so much lore that's going on in Mike Mignola is a big fan of mythology. It's not just the Christian stuff. He gets into Russian mythology and all kinds of weird stuff. Like, if you're into mythology, you'll probably really be into Hellboy because it gets a bit deep into it for me because I just, that's not really my thing. But I mean, at some point you get like into Arthurian legends and it gets real deep. That explains why Del Toro must have been a, an instant fan, why it was his favorite comic. I think of him as someone who very much celebrates mythology, lore. Keep in mind, he was supposed to step in for Peter Jackson on those Hobbit movies. And I think that you can see some of that talent that he would bring to that project even here in Hellboy. Which cut of the movie did you see? I noticed there is a shorter theatrical version and a director's cut. I saw the director's cut. I saw the theatrical cut in theaters. I like watching multiple cuts of films. I tried. Unless Hellboy is showing on like HBO or something and you might be able to DVR it, I couldn't find the theatrical cut anywhere. Yeah, I don't know if that exists anymore. I had this on DVD. Not sure what cut it was. I know both cuts came out. The director's cut came out much later on DVD, but now I have it on Blu-ray and that's only the director's cut. And it's only the director's cut available on Netflix right now. Mm hmm. Okay. Well, I did see, I think, the original version a couple years after it came out on cable. And then, yeah, for this viewing, I watched the Netflix version. So I guess I saw what Del Toro wanted me to see. So, Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? We can get into Hellboy. 
Ooh, plot summary. There's a lot going on here. I'm going to go real high level. We will, of course, get into more of it as we go through. And even by going high level, there's a lot of stuff here. I just can't wait to hear you say all those Lovecraftian demon names. I actually, just to preview, <laughs> call de- them demons. <laughs> Near the end of World War II, the Nazis try to summon demonic beings to help them defeat the Allied forces. The ceremony to do this is led by Gregory Rasputin, aided by Ilsa von Hopstein and Nazi assassin Karl Rupert Cronin. But the ceremony is interrupted by Allied troops, aided by occult professor Trevor Bruttenholm, played in modern day by John Hurt. They do disrupt the Nazi plan and seemingly kill Rasputin, but not before he can summon forth a demon. A very cute baby demon with a giant fist. The army men nickname him Hellboy. Brutenholm raised Hellboy like a son, and in modern day, the two work together at the FBI Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense, or BPRD for short. The secret agency investigates all forms of supernatural and strange occurrences. Also on the team is an amphibious empath being named Abe Sapien, played in body by Doug Jones and in voice by David Hyde Pierce. And they're all under the oversight of director Tom Manning, played by Jeffrey Tambor. When Brutenholm learns he has just six weeks to live, he brings in new team member John Myers, played by Rupert Evans. Myers is supposed to try to keep the rebellious Hellboy under control. And also back at the agency is Liz Sherman, a young pyrokinetic, played by Selma Blair. She has trouble controlling her powers and is the apple of Hellboy's eye, though Evans is also attracted to her, creating a love triangle in the film. But elsewhere, forces of evil conspire for revenge and to let hell rule the earth. Ilsa, granted immortal youth by Rasputin, still lives, as does Cronin, the latter's body deformed by extensive surgeries and his blood turned to sand. Together, they resurrect Rasputin, and the Russian magician summons forth a demon. Every time this creature is killed, two of its eggs hatch and release more monsters. Together, the BPRD group hunt down the beasts, but while Hellboy is distracted, fighting monsters, and spying on Liz and Evans, Cronin infiltrates the BPRD headquarters and kills Professor Brutenholm. Wanting to avenge his father figure, Hellboy and the others follow Rasputin to Moscow, where the magician is about to finish a spell to bring the demons to Earth and start Armageddon. But to do this, he needs a key. Hellboy's giant fist, which was made to fit a specific lock and open the dimensional portal. And Rasputin holds Liz hostage, threatening to banish her soul if Hellboy doesn't cooperate. But Hellboy refuses and stabs Rasputin, which releases a giant demonic creature that Hellboy also kills, and whispering in Liz's ear brings the woman back to him, and the two become an official boyfriend and girlfriend as credits roll. It's a movie that's as much about the interpersonal relationships, if not more about the interpersonal relationships, than it is about the plot. So it was kind of hard to balance what I consider to be almost like a rom-com, like that Reese Witherspoon one with the two spies (laughs) that are trying to date her, along with a story about demons attacking the Earth. (laughs) You're not wrong, Arnie, because I remember Roger Ebert's review, which got me to really want to see this. He's like, yeah, it's a superhero film, but it's also kind of like a romantic comedy you're you are right and a lot of the stuff added into this director's cut are character moments it's not action scenes it's del toro actually cares about these characters and wants to develop them i'll go ahead and preview the first time i saw this movie i found it very confusing Rewatching it again 
I don't know whether it's because I knew what to expect or because the added 12 minutes really helped, but I did not feel it was as disjointed and discombobulating as my original viewing experience. I actually felt like this version flows pretty well, starting with the prologue in World War II. I kind of love the fact that Del Toro is starting with the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark and just saying, this is where I'm going to begin. Remember when the Nazis melt and we have all the spirits? I'm going to start there and get crazier. Yeah, this reminded me of Raiders. And of course, this specific opening, I feel, was redone in a way by Captain America, too, when we start with the Red Skull getting the Tesseract there. Anytime you go to World War II spiritualism, you're going to be calling these other movies to mind. And it's a good scene, though. I think it's well done in this regard. And Del Toro, he's done these kind of army films since, and it shows here that he's got a great skill for this nighttime with all the pounding rain and the allied troops in it. It really has a sense of authenticity until we get to the magic and mojo. Yeah, you know, I was definitely thinking Raiders because of Nazis trying to do the occult and get power from that. It's also, it just feels like a pulp comic. Like, it feels like Doc Savage, if you if you ever read those comics from the 40s, with this adventurer, with a big barrel-chested adventure. It just, it has that feel to it that that's just different than other films that you would you would expect to cover this it's you i mean we're introduced to cronin who look if you love this cronin which i loved this was the biggest disappointment when i read the comic in the comic he's just like an evil nazi scientist that wears a gas mask he doesn't have the cool knives he doesn't he's not a clockwork steampunk assassin but you you get all these little flares here you get the military but then it gets real strange when rasputin shows up and all this weird occult science going on They talk about the Spear of Destiny, which I'm not a biblical scholar. I primarily knew of it from the Spear of Destiny video Wolfenstein games, where (laughs) we were trying to steal that back from Nazis. But we talked about it with Constantine, too, if you guys remember that. And so to see it here as one of the magical artifacts being discussed, it was like... All right, well, we've seen it done before and since, but I'm going to go with this. I have no idea. I mean, I know we talked about it a little on our Raiders podcast, but I have no idea if Hitler was this deep into occult research. But enough movies have convinced me that I'm not even going to question it. Yeah, let's play a little bit of fact and fiction here, because Del Toro is playing fast and loose with things. Yes, World War II happened, and there were Nazis. (laughs) Let's start with that. That is true. There is no Trondam Abbey off the coast of Scotland. So where they are going is fictional. The Thule Society that Hitler was a part of is real, but he wasn't a member of it. Many of the people that were in the Third Reich that did end up becoming major figures were into the occult. I don't think they've ever proven that Hitler himself was directly linked to Thule, but again, they're going to play fast and loose with these details. They're going to make the claim that he lives two years longer than the historically accepted idea that he died by taking his life in 45. Yeah, I love the idea that there was these Hitler wars that went on after World War II that they just drop a line. It's just a little joke later on. Right, yes. And what they are going for, Agdru Jihad, the seventh god of chaos, is, while not real, at least as far as I know, he may be, (laughs) but... He's a listener. He's pissed. (laughs) 
He is the creation of Robert Block, who you may remember is the author of Psycho, who was a big fan of Lovecraft and who wrote Lovecraft and said, can I write in your universe? And he created this and it was sort of a shared fictional creation between the two authors. Yeah, I wasn't sure if this was directly from Lovecraft. I mean, in the Bible, because there's definitely a biblical influence on this film as well. Like, in the book of Revelation, there's the seven-headed dragon that's going to end the world. Maybe Lovecraft was playing off of that. Yeah, Lovecraft knows mythology. He's working with someone else who loves his mythology and is expanding it. And then you have the comic book author who apparently used these characters as well. This is from the comic. Yeah, yeah. The, the seven god of chaos. Uh, yeah, all that. Rasputin, all that's from the comic. Yeah, So, and then you're having Del Toro on top of that. So you're getting a lot of different versions of things. Some of this stuff is true. Some of this is obviously fictitious. But I really like the idea that we have at the center of this. I think what is grounding and what Del Toro is not comfortable with, but I think is very essential, is that we have a human being. Amid all of these creatures and chaos that we're going to have, we have Broom, who is a young man in this prologue. He is British, but working with the Americans. I'm not sure how that happened. Yeah, Broom, who is Professor Brutenholm. They, they all call him Broom. I would call him that too, because Brutenholm's a mouthful. Yeah, he's a young man that's essentially going to become a reluctant father. He's going to adopt a kid as he's marching into the Scottish Abbey to stop Nazis. The last thing you would expect, but this is going <laughs> to be the story of a father and son. And I really like this character. It's very sad to me that he's actually going to be kind of peripheral. I wanted him to be part of Hellboy's team throughout the series, but I'll appreciate what little moments we get here. And he is the one that has led American forces who do not believe in the paranormal, but he does, to this abbey. And indeed, they have stumbled upon not only Nazis, but Rasputin, who is real, but and who was killed. Like, as legend has it, they tried to assassinate him seven or eight different times, drowning, poisonings. The guy was hard to kill. Do they castrate him, like they say here? Yeah, it, it, a, a lot of this supposedly did happen. But I really don't think he made it to 1944. <laughs> He's real. I wasn't sure. And as portrayed in this film, he looks like Dr. Mindbender from G.I. Joe. And I honestly just thought this was a comic book conceit. No, no, no. He definitely, the last czars of Russia employed him as sort of a advisor. And he was both a, a friend and foe to them. And I don't think he lived past the Russian Revolution, but it's kind of funny to think that he used magic to do so and is here in 1944. And it's in this moment we actually see also Ilsa, who I take to be like his girlfriend, and he bestows upon her right before this big ceremony immortal life, right? I mean, that's what he's doing when he's touching her forehead and all that. Yeah, there's some lip service to that. No pun intended. I didn't quite get, is it the book that gives her that or did he do something to her? I don't know. Yeah, I, I was wondering how does she not age, but it's because Rasputin does magic, basically. <laughs> like, they're not going to say anything. He just bestows the gift of eternal life or eternal youth on her. It might be the book. I don't know. This book will eventually lead them back to the place where they re can reincarnate Rasputin. I don't know why it's in Moldovia, but hey, there's a lot about the setup of this that I think is just kind of fanciful, and you go with it because it is elaborate and not because it makes sense. And, and this is one of them. I had that question specifically about Cronin, because 
he's here and he looks like he walked right out of like House of a Thousand Corpses or something. Any Rob Zombie album cover with his mask and his blades and all that. He's a badass fighter, but he also lives forever. And I don't think he got bestowed any special powers. No, he's a steampunk character here. It, it, this is very different than the comic, but he's basically like addicted to surgery and has made himself into a clock that he could just wind up to keep going. Yeah, I'm not even sure that he's really a character, If not, but maybe just exactly that, a robot or something, a zombie robot. Yeah, I wondered if he was a robot for a while. Later in the film, we're actually going to see his mask come off, and man, he, he'd scare Freddy Krueger under there with the surgically removed lips and eyelids, but he's not a robot. He was a man, and whatever happened to him after that... I don't know. But what we're told here is that it, five years in the making, Rasputin has been working with the Nazis to build a power glove. <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> what this is, but they have a gyroscope and a power glove. And being at this hollowed ground, I think specifically reciting some mumbo jumbo, we are led to believe that this is the portal by which the old gods of Lovecraftian lore are going to enter this world and, and destroy mankind. Yeah, and Rasputin, I don't think he has the uh, the Third Reich in mind. He just basically like, yeah, they're going to lay waste to everything, and we'll still be alive. We'll be able to still live. I, I don't think he's really there to help Hitler. He is there to reign in this god of chaos. I've always wanted to see the old ones. And I mean, that's the thing about Lovecraft. If you read him, he's always talking about how the real gods that made our universe are terrifying. And that if you ever see them or meet them, you'll go insane. So, of course, that's like total temptation, right? Anytime we can get a cinematic uh, look at these guys, we have this one really neat moment where a light gets sucked into the portal and we see it just sort of drift past this blob and an eye opens and... Yeah, that's all I've ever really understood about Cthulhu and some of these old gods is that they're just tentacles and eyes. And so we're to understand this is the apocalypse and Broom and the Allies delay it. They haven't ended it, but they delay it so that it's not going to happen until modern day, turn of the century, New York. Well, yeah, they attack and there is a, a point where Rasputin, this was added to the director's cut where his eyes get sucked up. Like that was a big deal in this director's cut that Rasputin doesn't have eyes. But I guess that scene of his eyes getting sucked into that portal was going to get the movie an R rating. So they had to change all that. But yeah, Rasputin gets sucked up like he goes away. I think the Americans and Broom think they've saved the day until they realize that something did make it through that portal. But they've at least stopped Rasputin and the Nazis plan to bring in these gods. It's something about a grenade. It's not very good. They don't use magic, as far as I can tell. No, they're Americans. They use guns. <laughs> yeah. Well, but Broom's there. I figured he could do some counter mumbo jumbo. But no, he's the one that makes sure that the grenade gets to the gyrosphere. They blow it up. They close the portal. But it is also a prophecy that what comes out will one day reopen the portal. That this red ape that is scurrying around the crypt is a cutie that they call Hellboy, but is actually destined to still bring about the end of the world. And he really is adorable. There's now a comic that Marjorie actually buys and reads called Itty Bitty Hellboy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I understand why. Is it like Muppet Babies? Yes, it is. It's with the whole Hellboy universe. They're all little kids. Yeah. 
Shrek would enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, Cronin is a little child running around. Uh, sure. <laughs> Start the Hitler Youth early. Baby Rasputin. Yeah, they're they're all kids in it. I haven't read it myself, but I love looking at the little pictures and just, you know, have a lot of fun with it. And here, he is just incredibly adorable as this little, they call him a red monkey with his giant fist and his tail. I think the CGI animators there, they did a great job with the face. Yeah, I like that. When he shows up, they use the baby Ruth to lure him because kids love candy, no matter if they're from hell or earth. Is the fact that Rasputin had a giant glove in any way... Uh, significant to the fact that this demon also has an oversized hand. It's kind of an amazing coincidence if there isn't a direct reason as to why he sort of looks like a miniature red version of Rasputin. Yeah, I think in this film, that's the conclusion you're to draw is that you got to have that big hand to open gates. And that's why Hellboy, when he comes through and he's going to be the one that someday will bring the end of the universe. He has that same kind of hand. It's They've kept it more or less a mystery in the comic. Like, at some point they explain, like, when Hellboy was born, his father cut off his hand and attached this stone one to him, so I guess he could bring about the apocalypse later. But they've really kept that a mystery for the most part. They, they don't go into it a whole lot. Okay, so that's what it is. In order to command that kind of power to open a door, you better have a big old hand. And so whether it be an electrical one you you put on your arm or, yeah, you're born with it because you're a demon, that's what they're going with. You know, I could have stayed in World War II for quite some time. It's almost a shame we have to leave this prologue and jump to modern-day New York. And... This came out considerably after Men in Black, which we just finished reviewing on our donation. And Ghostbusters, yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm specifically thinking Men in Black because this BPRD is under the cover of a waste recycling station. And of course, nobody's going to want to investigate. It reminds me of Men in Black being in that whole power works. So in the comic world, I don't know how close Men in Black was to the comic, but who's ripping off who here? I think Del Toro's ripping off Men in Black or at least going for that vibe. Because, again, in the comic, the BPRD is not a secret organization. Hellboy, people would know about him. He goes out in public. So this whole secrecy thing was made, created by Del Toro for the film. Yeah, and it's stationed in Newark. You know, I've I've taken my digs at Jersey over time just because it's... As the unfortunate proximity to being right next to the best city in the world, it is often treated like the dumping ground. That Yeah, this is a waste disposal treatment center is a good cover if you are trying to do something nefarious in New York. But basically, yeah, these are a men in black kind of unit that are going to stop the paranormal as they attack New York City. Or is it anywhere in the world? It feels very New York in this film. In the comic, it's anywhere in the world. Mm. It's always been everywhere. Okay. And I kind of got anywhere in the world, even though they're based in New York. They're the FBI, you know? And we start with a character who's transferred from Quantico. The FBI have their Quantico base, but they go wherever the crime is. And I, despite getting the Men in Black vibe from how they're organized and the fact that you walk in and there's all these strange things... I was also thinking Mulder and Scully and X-Files. I'm sure that's how this got concept got sold to the Suits 
that we're like, what is this Hellboy? I mean, uh, that's got to be a selling point when you pitch the concept in the meeting, is that... Monsters hunting monsters. <laughs> yeah, it's Ghostbusters, it's X-Files, it's Men in Black, and it's the next level. It's even more extreme because it's bringing in supernatural mythology never seen before. And a good hook. I mean, I think, yeah, that's kind of what we're doing this summer, and it really feels in sync that we get Hellboy in here, too. He seems to fit. But I mentioned before, I really like Broom. Bad news. Broom has cancer, and they are writing out John Hurt. Not happy about this. I've always liked John Hurt. Of course, Alien is maybe his claim to fame, the Elephant Man. He's got a great seductive voice, and I really feel like he works very well as a father figure to this demonic, adolescent, hellboy vigilante. But... The guy that they're bringing in to replace him, I'm not getting any John Hurt in Myers. Why did they go with this guy? Well, Stuart, I think Del Toro does sympathize with your viewpoint. In the comic, Broom dies like on page four of that opening miniseries very fast. Del Toro likes Broom. He wants to keep him around. This is a story about, you know, a father trying to make sure his son grows up into a man. The movie opens, what makes a man a man? And so I I think this death storyline, it's there to give some urgency to Broom's character and and go, okay, I really need to, you know, because Hellboy's going to be a brat at the beginning of this film. So reducing Broom, trying to take those steps to make sure as a father that he's done his job and yeah i don't know if myers is the one to do it though i feel like myers is here as our viewpoint character we're gonna see a lot of crazy stuff and so we're supposed to look at myers to know how to react to it but he's not will smith or bill murray no (laughs) i've I've never even seen this actor before or since apparently he's on the amazon philip k dick show man in the high castle i haven't seen that one but I don't know who he is, and I think there's kind of a reason. He's kind of a blank. Yeah, he's very bland, and he reminds me of so many other pretty boy actors from the late 90s and early 2000s. Billy Crudup? (laughs) That would be one. He also reminds me a little bit in the looks of Josh Hartnett, and with the part in his hair and everything, he reminds me a little bit of Wesley Crusher from Star Trek The Next Generation. But... Yeah, he's coming in here. I don't see why he would be the one that the professor would pick to govern Hellboy. You know, he says later on, he looked at a lot of files and this is the one he picked. Um, Yeah, since we're talking about Indiana Jones, I'll just say, you chose poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't see any of Broom in the kit either. He is just a total blank generic. I'm going to bet, I may may be wrong here, but this was studio mandated, right? That this character is not in the Hellboy comic? Yeah, this is just here for, I mean, there's lots of human characters in the BPRD, but this Myers character is new for the movie. Yeah, you can feel that Del Toro doesn't care about him. He's sort of written to be a romantic rival, sort of, a little bit later, but by and large, he's here so that people can explain to him how this world works. But unlike Will Smith or Bill Murray or these characters that we normally see in these situations... He's not even a Harold Ramis. I mean, come on. No humor, no sass, nothing about him that feels distinctive or unique. He's a choir boy. And so it's really kind of an unfortunate coat rack to hang their hat on here. I, I feel like you could almost go without him and just have Broom be healthy and leading the team, and it would it would work just as well. 
I think the professor has to die, though. I view this really as a coming-of-age story. We have Hellboy here, Ron Perlman, and some amazing makeup, but he's 60 years old. But they say he's only in his 20s. Now, Ron Perlman was well beyond his 20s when they were making this, but the makeup makes him look young, so I'll go with 20s. But this whole film, he's going to lose his dad, he's going to confront his destiny, it's a maturation story. It's the hero's journey. He's our Luke Skywalker who's going to start off playing with that little toy making vroom vroom noises and end as a hero. So I think that while you may like John Hurt apparently a hell of a lot more than I do in this movie, I don't dislike him, but I'm not like weeping that he's going to leave the series. No, no, I'm saying I like the actor and if you were going to have a human be the focal point, he's the one to focus on. But I guess he's not young enough. They want wanted to have an attractive youth audience star on the rise. Do they really think that Rupert Evans was going to be somebody? I don't think so. I mean, but I again, I think Broom has to go because this is about Hellboy becoming a man and losing his father and, and having to grow up. He, uh, he, Yeah, he's been alive 60 years, but he's got the mind of a 20-year-old. And I mean, he's he's kept in a literally kept in a vault, like a bank vault, and hangs out with kitty cats and eats a ton of like beef, jerky, and chili. Oh my God, the amount of food that they bring him. We never really see him eat. No, I wanted to see him eat at some point. <laughs> I imagine in the makeup, it's very hard to get food there and not ruin the latex and paint but i think just the amount of time it would take him to eat that would mean he could do nothing but i mean they bring in vats of chili but this is what you eat when you're a teenager i mean this feels very honest of like the idea that yeah he's just this regressed stays at home but is ready to go out in the world you get the sense that he wants to be out there but doesn't like the idea that he has to basically go out on missions, hiding in a garbage truck, and that nobody can know about him. That he is essentially an urban legend. Why do they keep him in a safe, though? I didn't ever understand that. Is it locking him in, or is it locking others out? I thought it was like detention. Yeah, he wants to escape. He wants to go out into the world. We see before this, Manning's on the talk shows, like debunking, doing the, you know, neuralizer thing, more or less, on on talk shows, debunking Hellboy. And, you know, I I feel like the BRP has created these Hellboy comics that they show in the movie to kind of just try to mythologize him, to make him an urban legend and not something real. They hate Manning, especially Tambor's character, hates whenever there's a sighting of Hellboy because it's his job to keep it secret. And Hellboy specifically wants to go out there and see his girlfriend, who used to live in the complex, but has decided that the best way to control her power, which is pyrokinesis, a fire starter, essentially, she's decided the best thing that she can do for herself is to go to a mental ward. I almost feel like that is something else as well. Does she want to get away from Hellboy? Does she want to isolate her power or does she just want to not be pressured to be in a romantic relationship with Hellboy because that seems to be a big source of tension throughout the movie the, my reading is that because she says at one point she has quit the BPRD 13 times and she always ends up coming back my feeling is that because we see you know we haven't talked about him yet but there's Abe Sapien fish stick this fish man and there's Hellboy this devil and I'm sure they interact with all kinds of weird creatures her whole thing is she wants to feel normal she doesn't want to feel like a freak so I feel like that's why she keeps leaving is because she could hide her power if she could learn to control it. She doesn't have to be an urban legend like these other characters. 
And Selma Blair, she has always been, in my mind, kind of this quirky girl taking on odd type of roles, but I don't know that I've ever seen her better used than in the Hellboy films, where her charisma and her looks that are, she's very attractive, but unconventionally attractive, I think just fit this kind of outcast world so well. She's goth, you know, that's the way that I take it. She's like (laughs) Feruza Balk without the track marks. You know, she's not so far gone that she feels strung out, but you definitely get a a sullen, sulky character in any movie that I can think of. She's a damaged character. Yes, I agree. She projects that well, and I get that here. It's awfully funny to say I want to be normal and then commit yourself to an insane asylum where people are really screwed up. I mean, these aren't normal people she's surrounded by. I have to believe there is on some level some uncertainty about what she has going on with Hellboy because when he comes to seek her later she doesn't want to go back with him I get a real bitch guard thrown up there she does not want his advances (laughs) my feeling on her and tell me if I'm wrong on this but I read that she's been part of the BPRD since she was really really young and so I think that as she's matured, she is now questioning her feelings for Hellboy. And as she grew up, Hellboy started to see her as a woman who he was interested in. That's my reading of this. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, we did have one flashback scene in Pittsburgh of her as a child going thermonuclear. And so, yeah, I would presume after that incident, she was brought in there so that she's known Hellboy since she was a girl. And now she's not a girl is again, I think why she wants some distance, some way of, of feeling like, hey, I need some time to sort out whether I'm romantically attracted to you or whether you're just my lifelong friend. And, and again, my feeling is that she goes to this mental ward, but she says they've made the most progress with her. So yes, she's around crazy people that are freaks, but she's also making progress here. And she hasn't had an episode in ex- you know, the longest period of time ever in her life. So I do feel like, yes, it's a, maybe a mixed message. And she gives lots of mixed messages here with Hellboy. She'll entertain him when he comes and stalks her outside that mental ward. And then- then there's the other member of the team who's sort of the Spock, if you were, the intellectual who looks a little funny, but probably is the most grounded, even though he's a fish, Abe Sapien. I've always kind of liked this character. Now, he's played by Doug Jones, who I think the only thing we've reviewed him in before is he was the Silver Surfer in that second of the good Fantastic Four series films. Those weren't good, but... They're uh, better Fantastic Four (laughs) series films. It hasn't been made yet. But, yes, he's a good physical actor. I feel like Del Toro uses him a lot whenever he needs monsters to walk weird and, yeah, have angular body types. He's a very physical presence. He makes perfect sense here as Abe. Yeah, and one thing they did add it, he has psychic powers here. That is not in the comic, but here if he touches something, he could get images from it. So it's not just that he's a fish man. And again, he all they say about him is that he was found in a tank like this. The same year as what? Abraham Lincoln won the Civil War, so they named him Abe. <laughs> well, that's the date on the tank. I don't know if that's the date they found him. There was like That's this- right. Yes, yes. Because he joined, at least in the comics, he joined later, like in the 70s. And Doug Jones, is this a CGI character or is he in a suit? He is in a suit for most of this. There's some obvious CGI. There's When he's in that back to tank at the end, it looks like it's just a dummy floating in there. <laughs> but no, when he's walking around, that is Doug Jones in makeup and Del Toro just loses his mind over 
Doug Jones's performance and Ron Perlman's performance having to act in this kind of makeup where it's very hard to move and very hard to control what you know what the the makeup's actually doing on the outside but I guess this is what Doug Jones does uh, Del Toro's used him in Pan's Labyrinth and, and he does a lot of this kind of stuff best scene in Pan's Labyrinth yeah yeah he's, agreed. he's like a monster with the eyes on his palms yeah yeah he, that iconic scene yeah he just physically yeah he would be a good mime I feel like you know he's just Someone that knows how to use his body like a dancer, and that's that's typically where he's at his best. But he is not doing the voice. I didn't realize you guys are telling me Niles from Frasier is actually doing the voice. I can hear it now. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that either until Arnie said the name. It's funny because going into this, like the Entertainment Weekly and other magazines I was reading at the time made it very clear this was a Niles from Frasier. And so when I saw this, I knew it, and it never crossed my mind, hey, he's not in the credits anywhere. He James Earl Jones this thing where he did the voice but took no credit. And Okay, so they don't credit him at all. No, what I read is this was a studio mandate. One of the few is they felt they needed to have a name for the voice who would bring them publicity. And then when they hired David Hyde Pierce, he issued all publicity, didn't even show up at the premiere, refused have anything to do with it and the story that circulates i don't know if i believe it but the story that circulates is when he heard doug jones's vocal performance he thought it was a travesty that doug jones was being overdubbed he said he listened to doug jones's lines and basically did the same inflection the same intonations and so he felt it was doug jones's performance not his and so whatever the studio wanted to gain by paying him they didn't really get (laughs) yeah okay well so doug jones did do a version and it was scrapped and so the, he was really the the fill in. You know what? You also don't do the red carpet if you're the second <laughs> string voiceover actor. I can imagine that this wouldn't be Niles's favorite Hollywood moment. But it's a good team. I do feel like it's well balanced, and I do like all the characters, even if I'm not sure entirely what all their relationships. But I do want to compliment. You talked about the makeup there because I. It was so intricately detailed. I did wonder if it was a Jar Jar situation. The makeup here, just phenomenal. Del Toro does not do Jar Jar CGI often. He wants that practical stuff. Hellboy is the best on-screen makeup I have seen since Tim Curry in Legend. I mean, it is a very similar look, but my God, I believe every bit of it there with the carvings in him, the symbols, and Abe Sapien. This is a gorgeous-looking film with the practicals. The demons, who definitely are CGI, eh, not so much. But these two, gorgeous characters. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think it's a very fun team. With the with, If you got rid of this choir boy FBI agent Myers, they would be perfect. And so... Yeah, I we'll see what happens next week then <laughs> with the sequel. Yeah, I don't remember him in the sequel, but uh, we also got the villain coming back here as well. Rasputin is making a return from the dead in Moldovia that Ilsa has used his book to find him again or at least some runes in an iced over cave and kills a sherpa, the blood brings him back hellraiser style with no eyes. It goes through that little labyrinth, that blood. I mean, labyrinths are a big deal. Pan's Labyrinth would be Del Toro's next film. And this, the opening credit sequence was this labyrinth. And he just feels like labyrinths, it's not about being amazed. It's about making choices and, and deciding who you are. So we're going to see that labyrinth motif come up again and again throughout this film. And we even see it with Rasputin's return. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, the eyeballs here really freaked me out. I'm like, does this mean he's blind? Which is not in the theatrical one, because they could not show him without eyes, or else they get an argument. Ah, that that explains that. Cronin's zombie face was okay for BG-13, but not eyeless Rasputin. I wondered if the zombie face was also in the director's cutter only or not, but... With the eyes being blind, and yet I felt he could see, it was reminding me of Event Horizon a little bit. I didn't know if the eyes they put in him were for our comfort or for his sight. I actually don't even think it is Rasputin. I mean, what we'll see by the end of this movie is that he's got a tentacle old one inside of him. And and throughout the movie, there'll be little ripples in his flesh. I feel like, much like Men in Black where the bug just put on Vincent D'Onofrio's skin as a suit, I feel like this is Rasputin in exterior only. And he's basically going to engineer kind of a complicated plot. All he really needs to do is get Hellboy to open a door on a certain day, but he's going to also release the Hounds of Hell. Yeah, what is his overall plot? Help me, I mean, I did a plot summary, but help me to (laughs) figure this out because he's going to go through a lot of machinations. He's going to visit Liz in the psychiatric ward later on and make her go Firestarter. He's going to a museum and planting demons. And all of this is to bring those demons to Earth that he tried to do in World War II. Right? Yeah. But in World War II, he was doing it to defeat the Allies. Why is he doing it now? Well, no. In World War II, he was doing it to end the world. Yeah. Like, he he says that. And he's doing it for the same reason here. Rasputin is Russian. That was on the different side than the Nazis. He was not doing it for political reasons at all. No, he was doing it for the Nazis. He was working for the Nazis. That's why there were so many Nazis there. He worked for the Nazis to get the tech to do it, but he had his own ends in mind. Yeah, Russians did not collaborate with Nazis by and large. (laughs) Stalingrad is a testament to that. No, he was exactly pacifying Nazis in order to get the gods here. That all he has cared about is the old ones. What are they calling him? I'll just call him OJ. This Andrew Jihad. <laughs> OJ's got to come back. And so that is his mission. And I think it's just everything that he does here is sort of based on prophecies we haven't read and basically getting Hellboy to get worked up and commit to opening the door. Yeah, I really paid attention because, Stuart, you said the first time you watched this, you were really confused about things. And I've always felt that with this one. Like, it feels like this convoluted plot where Rasputin's doing things like, why does he bring Liz back? So I really paid attention and he releases Samuel, this demon, as a distraction so he could go about his other things. But it was also to prepare Hellboy because eventually he needs Hellboy. He needs his stone hand to unlock that gate. He kidnaps Liz, you know, makes her lose control of her power so she'll return. And again, he needs to distract Hellboy for like the first half and then he needs Hellboy to come after him eventually and so he can use his hand. It's I still think it's convoluted, but they do try to give a reason for all of it. Yeah. It's very convoluted. I followed it while watching it, but when I'm really thinking it through, it's like, Especially the Selma Blair fire thing. I don't know that she was really vital to this whole thing, but I felt like these hellhounds would have been a demon enough. I mean, if every time you kill one to take its place, I mean, it's like Hydra, then I think that that alone would be enough to overrun the Earth, right? 
Well, that's not the point. The point is to get the God here. You got to get OJ. That's who he loves. That's who he worships. That may even be who he is in a way. He might be to OJ what Jesus was to God. I mean, that's the <laughs> sense that I'm having here. But he wants to open the portal again and get that old one into earth. The tentacles have to come from the sky. I think it's prophecy that you just need that once we have Sam's, is what I'm going to call them, once you have Sam's running around, we're one step closer to having OJ here. That it's, you got to have like the, what were those gargoyles in Ghostbusters? But you got to have those guys before you get Zool. Again, later on, Rasputin towards the end is going to say, everything's happened just as I saw it happen. So it's like, okay, it is prophecy. It just has to happen this way. Look, Del Toro in the commentary says, I hate when logic is put above all other elements in a, a movie. He's not a huge fan of logic. He wants us to feel mythical and a fairy tale. So yeah, there are these weird, like, why is he doing this? Like, would this make the most sense if you're really trying to bring back the old gods? But this is in a fairy tale, I guess. This is how you'd go about doing it. And that is Del Toro's motivation. And we do need to give the team a smaller mission just to show how they work, just to show that they pile into a garbage truck and go to a library to go bust some demons. This is a really fun scene for me. First of all, of course, Hellboy's been told to keep the low profile, to not be seen. And he goes in there and this reminded me a lot of Del Toro's first American film and first film I ever saw of his, Mimic, which all took place about this creature in a museum. I remember the creatures like in the trailers. I was wondering if they look like this. I remember them having the same outline. In the end, they don't necessarily look like this. But when we first see this hellhound, he's like hanging from the ceiling and is all wrapped up in like this weird cocoon. I didn't even think it was a creature. I thought it was just something hanging up there. The thing about Mimic is it had these wings and from a distance you thought it looked like a person and things you didn't realize you were looking at this big demon thing. And so the introduction to the hellhound made me think of Mimic. Again, the setting and all. But when you finally see it, it's like, oh okay, we're dealing with a giant beastie here, and I love the dreadlock look it has. <laughs> it's not quite dissimilar from the Blade Two vampires, too, with the big retractable tongue that uh, was such a big feature that bit you. The Reapers. Yeah. Del Toro loves that tongue. That's a Del Toro thing. Yeah, the fact that we got this creature, yeah, giving some tongue to Hellboy here, and planting eggs in his wounds, that's kind of gross. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, that that is from the comic, too. That always disturbed me. That, like, it's going to hurt you, and then it's going to lay eggs inside of you. That is some weird fear that I have, I guess, of, like, bugs doing that or something. But, you, you know, this is Rick Baker doing these Hellhound costumes. I did get kind of a Men in Black vibe from, you know, it jumps back and forth between CGI and, and an actual suit with specifically these characters. And when it's a suit, it looks like a suit, but I kind of like it because it's such an interesting design. I love the way the eyes just kind of move in it. And Yeah, I when it's a suit, I love it. When it's CGI, I like it. And I especially like when he knocks Hellboy and the camera angle Del Toro uses. I think Del Toro is an awesome visual filmmaker. When they like attach the camera to Hellboy and he's flying back through those cases and he's equidistant. So he stays in the same place, but he smashes through the cases out the window and down into the alley. That's just an amazing camera shot. Yeah, it's a fun action scene. And again, shows you that Hellboy has no fear, that he does not worry that he is... Again, you could go back to Raiders, really. He's got that sort of 
Indiana Jones kind of been there, done that gruffness that is going to make you like him. I don't know that if I had focused more on his, like, demon mythology, I mean, that might be a little distracting here. But he feels like one of the guys, really. He feels like a workaday Joe, and that humor uh, humanizes him. Yeah, one of my favorite things about Magnola's writing is his understated humor, especially with Hellboy. Like, he's facing off against Lovecraftian demons or vampires, and he gets hit by him or something or stabbed by him. And his response is just, oh, crap. Like, And I love that Del Toro brought that trait over to you. Everything's understated with it, which kind of makes sense because you're a giant devil. Like, you, you don't have to get super excited about things because you could probably beat him. Yeah. It'd be funny to imagine Harrison Ford in this makeup. I don't think he would do it. <laughs> but he's got that quality. And, I, and hats off to Ron Perlman that he can play that part through acting and do the physical work of having to wear what looks like very heavy makeup and cumbersome character design and really move. You know, I'm sure there's stunt work going on here too, but this performance feels full-bodied that he's doing it all. Yeah, no, he definitely does have a stunt double that has to wear that same makeup. And there are times where you get a CGI Hellboy instead in some of these fights, but mostly it's Ron Perlman doing all this. And I, I just, again, I love his performance. I love his timing. You know, when he does hear the word that he's going to face off against the Hound of Resurrection, he replies, see, I don't like that. Like <laughs> he gives a good performance here. I do love his performance, his vocal gruffness that he brings. I mean, if you go back to our old reviews, I really like Ron Perlman a lot in Alien Resurrection, and I really like his characterization in Blade 2, but I didn't pay attention to the actor when I first saw those films. It was this movie that made me a fan of his, and then he did like some made-for-TV Stephen King thing, and I'm like, ooh, okay, maybe not. But here... He is perfect. He's the physicality, and he does bring that sardonic wit and the dry humor. And like you said, he has no fear. He's going to just rush in and think what can't be fixed with his big gun can be fixed with his fist. He's just a great character. I can't get enough of him. In film. And again, it plays well off of Abe, who is reading the books. You know, he's the smart one. He's the Spock. He's the one that's going to be giving us all of the facts about these Samuels while, yeah, poor Ron Perlman is being beaten by them. I think that's a fun interplay. It allows the talky stuff and the backstory and the lore to play out at the same time. And that's why I think we don't need the professor. The professor can die because we got Abe doing that role. I'm not against the professor dying. I'll be clear with that. But they set him up as a character that is terminally ill, and then they're going to kill him for an entirely different reason. I don't know why you have to have that terminal illness. That terminal illness is an added scene. That was cut from the original theatrical version. The the fact that he's going to die within a certain amount of days. Yeah, it's fine to lose the father figure and make Hellboy become Hellman. Okay with that. But I just don't know why we need Myers here. We only need Myers here if, in fact, this terminal man is stepping down and handing over the reins. As it is, Hellboy never finds out that his father figure is sick. And again, he's much more preoccupied with getting his girlfriend, who has chosen to leave him to better herself or just put distance between them. But we eventually get out of this museum. We're going to find that this thing kind of jumped out of an urn that was cut open from a vase. I did like the joke that like, oh, I thought we checked out this museum and it was all fakes. And they're like, no, this one thing was real. That was kind of clever. I also love that it's Halloween. or So there's this big 
carnival going on so Hellboy and this demon could run around and they could just say it's costume. Right. New York traffic, of course, being what it is, it almost runs over poor Meyer and, you know, Hellboy does his first heroic thing for his partner who he clearly doesn't like, but he does stop a truck so it doesn't run him down. I guess that was gracious. But it's all building up so that we can get down into the subway lines and that's where they're going to do a lot of the action in the middle of this movie. And I love this train sequence. Uh, Men in Black 2 could have, you know, is did such a horrible one. Here we have such a fun one. I love when the train runs over Hellboy and he has these horns and he grinds them down because he doesn't like having those big demonic horns. And the train runs over them and they like turn orange with heat from the friction of it. It's just, I imagine that shaving it down is like that. And uh, again, Ron Perlman during these action scenes is such a joy. And when he kills the demon grabbing that third post, you burn, I don't. Yeah, and that's an important part of his romantic subplot, too, because he is romancing a a woman that at certain times will set an entire room on fire. That's never going to bother him. She can't burn him away from him. He is flame retardant. So, yeah, he can take electrical shocks. He can take flames. He can seemingly take everything. He seems indestructible, but he does get that injury here. We find out that that tongue did burn a wound into him. I do feel like if you try to shoot him or stab him or something, you could hurt him, but fire, that's not going to hurt him, because he's a devil. He comes from fire. Right, right. And it's easy to forget. Even though he's called Hellboy and is red, I don't think it's the shaving down the, the horns that is doing it. I think it is that he is so personable and funny. We just do not think of him as being a minion of evil. But that is the destiny that Rasputin is counting on and in the shadows planning. That he even wanted him to kill Samael because Samael, every time he dies, there's more of them and that will keep them distracted while we wait to get to what's really the finale of the film in Moscow. I mean, and we're going to spend a lot of time down in the subway. I do feel like this is the res- one of the restraints of the budget when you have a lot of special effects. It's like, you got to keep the uh, the set pieces kind of small. We're going to have some big ones later on, but we're going to spend a lot of time down here in the subway. We're going to see the rest of the BPRD go down. They're going to look for these eggs. eggs Abe Sapien's going to show up and swim around, look for these eggs of the Samuels so they could try to destroy them. But it's going to lead to more fights. Yeah, I think this entire thing was set up because you have an amphibian who, you know, it's not too often in everyday life that you need that power. So they have this underwater scene. And I do like how he walks around. He puts like a scuba tank on so he can breathe when he's in normal air. Yeah, but he, and he has goggles with water in them to keep his mm-hmm. eyes moisturized. Yeah, it's a funny inverse of how we think about what scuba diving is and that... Yeah, he has to adapt to be in our world, but that he's willing to do it, usually without a fuss. I do feel like he is a character that is, you know, Hellboy gives you a lot of attitude. Abe is a team player. You give him some rotten eggs and he'll basically do what you want. (laughs) Yeah, but he kind of gets messed up by these hellhounds. He he gets carved up. It's going to take him out for most of the movie now. But Hellboy, he's going to get another fight. And I do love, like, he's got to save kitties while he's he's fighting a hellhound because Hellboy loves cats that is a movie thing that is not in the comic but oh it's such a great character thing i was thinking it had to be from the comics no nope that's made up here yeah i did too why why else do it Uh, it's kind of strange because it's del toro and that seems like a del toro thing you you have this big scary monster and he loves kittens 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I get that sort of, but is it going to play out later? I mean, it plays out here because at one moment during a big fight, there's a box of kittens in the middle of it and he's trying to protect them while beating the crap out of this demon. I mean, that's gives you some physical comedy, but by and large, that's all that it's really going to mean here. Yeah, it's a fun scene. It's a fun fight when he's like being pulled over and I'm like, you could just set that box down now, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the whole, what, there, there's like an officer's, or whatever, a walkway above him that gets pulled down onto him by the hellhound. I, I don't, we never see Manning have to clean up this situation. There's a lot of people that saw this fight, and I'm not sure how all these people were neuralized to forget about Hellboy, but we see more losses here. Like, Cronin is going to take out one of the agents, the one that has the bad hair plugs that's kind of friendly with Hellboy and, and likes him. And then Cronin's going to fake his death. In this movie, if you're wearing an FBI suit, you might as well be wearing a red yes. shirt. <laughs> Unless you're Jeffrey Tambor. Yeah, Jeffrey Tambor's different. I mean, he had been on Arrested Development and was a name. But these other guys with the hair plugs, I'm like, why are we spending so much time talking about this guy's hair plugs? It has to be because he's going to be the capital M, capital D, meaningful death. And no, it turns out it was the professor, but... I don't think he actually dies. They never confirm it. He's in critical condition and we never see him again, but... Including the sequel. <laughs> what we're really learning here, and I think it becomes a staple throughout del toro's entire body of work which is that human beings are kind of awful and disposable and i'm not really interested in them the characters that we root for are the monsters so yeah basically yeah if you're a human being you're disposable you're dead meat only Myers seems to be one that's fated for a better destiny I mean, Del Toro says in the commentary he loves monsters because they're the ultimate minority, and you could tell all kinds of allegories with them, but I think he thinks they're actually real. Like, knowing Del Toro, he probably thinks, yes, monsters actually do exist, and yeah, he loves them more than the human character. Are you willing to say they don't? I also think he's uh, referred to his own personal life as being something of a Beauty and the Beast storyline. I think that's why we get the romantic triangle that we do here. It does feel surprisingly like the fairy tale, the Disney Beauty and the Beast, where you have the normal-looking guy who I think we're supposed to think could maybe make a move on Liz. And at the same time, there's the big ogre guy that really loves her and is genuinely committed to her and who we are asked to want to end up with Liz. And I don't quite think that entire subplot works. I mean, we're introduced to Liz primarily when Hellboy, after the first subway fight, decides he's going to go off on his own and he goes to see Liz while she's still in the sanitarium. And after she comes back, he's so excited to see her and everything I don't see what anyone would see with Meyer, and perhaps this is because of how poorly developed he is. I mean, yes, he's a pretty boy, but she's known Hellboy her whole life. I can't decide if it is a love triangle or if it's supposed to be played like she's just looking for someone to talk to and talk through her feelings about Hellboy, and Hellboy mistakes it for a romance. Later in the film, though, you get some looks on Meyer's face that definitely say he's into her, so I don't think it's as defined as it could be. I think the director's cut does a better job at setting it up because it adds some character scenes that scene where Myers and Liz are driving back to the BPRD and she's taking pictures and she takes a picture of them and then later she's snapping her wrist with those rubber bands these are all added scenes and I just feel like okay Myers like she's 
revealing all this stuff to him and she's growing close to him. You didn't get that in the theatrical cut. It just seemed more sudden. And I like that. The way he just keeps going, she took his picture. She took his picture. Yeah, I think the reason why we're not getting clear signals about what Myers intends to do about it is because Del Toro, in general, is not that interested in the character, and nobody else is either. He is here primarily so that the other characters, the ones we like, explain what they're thinking and doing to him. But he himself doesn't really have a strong arc. I think at some point, John Hurt tells him, he needs to be like some Arthurian knight and leading Hellboy to be his manhood or something. I don't think that really transpires. And I really don't even know that he would, even if he has a crush here on Liz, and there are times, scenes, close-ups where we get that impression, I don't think he would dare try to move in on Hellboy's girl knowing how fearsome Hellboy would be and and how easily he would lose that fight. At least not in front of Hellboy. But again, he gives those facial expressions that make me wonder. Yeah, but he won't dare act on it. I mean, sure, he, she's cute and, and she's opening up to him, but if your job is to feed the lion, would you really try to go in there and pet the lioness? You wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I would, because if your job is also to face off against demons, you can't can't be a pussy around them. I mean, when, when they go on this little date, Myers and Liz, he takes her out to go get coffee. He's doing the whole yawning trick. He doesn't know Hellboy's watching. He is. Hellboy's followed him and spied on him. But it does look like he's trying to put the moves on Liz. Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, and again, it could be read several different ways. I don't think it matters whichever way you want to, because ultimately, he's not much of a romantic rival for Hellboy. He uh, He's just there to show you how much Hellboy stews over the idea of someone else being with Liz. And that's the only character who shines. I think Liz in these scenes, I like Selma Blair in this movie, but when she's this angsty and hanging out with bland Myers. I'm not feeling it too much, and Myers I'm not getting anything from. I'm loving Ron Perlman as Hellboy's reactions to all this. Hanging out with the little kid on the rooftop and the kid, I mean, in this world, Hellboy is a comic book character because of the urban legend and so the kid's just so excited to see Hellboy up there and he's like, I'm on a mission. Those guys are spies and throwing the rock, Hellboy makes these scenes zing when the other two characters just aren't carrying it. I actually don't think Liz is well-written in this entire movie. We might like her as a character, or as a romantic foil, but I always feel like she's clumsily inserted in the story. It would have been much more organic to have her have run into Rasputin and used her power, and maybe that's how Hellboy meets her. I know they're trying to say that they're lifelong friends, but maybe that wasn't the way to go here, because... I don't understand what Rasputin wants to do with her, and I just don't feel like she's ever that much of a help to what they're dealing with. But to Arnie's point, I like there's kind of this lightness and this humor here. You know, I'm trying to think about superhero films up to this point. I, I don't know if we would get something this light. I think Marvel has made an industry about bringing this kind of humor into its superhero films at time, but to have this rom-com moment where Hellboy's sitting on the roof eating cookies and complaining about his love life to a kid like we'd have to wait till Iron Man 3 I guess to see Tony Stark talk to a child and I hated that but I'm liking it here well I wouldn't call this a superhero movie it might be a comic book movie but to me it feels much more in keeping with the mask or or just something more offbeat it just doesn't have the vibe of being a Batman or Superman movie 
No, it's more, I I do think, and Del Toro was criticized for it because it came out after X-Men, it does have that freaky superhero type vibe. I mean, he was going off of a, the Doom Patrol, which was DC's version of the X-Men that came out at the same time, where it's freaks who have to end up saving the world, even though people don't like them. It, it's, it, I mean, we saw that with the X-Men, but what we think of is, yeah, superheroes normally with Batman, Superman, Iron Man now, you know, Captain America. No, this is something a little bit different. And it's it's definitely the villains that have a different vibe here. It's it's Nazis and the occult. Like, yeah, that you don't see that. Yeah, and the villain, Rasputin, isn't totally working for me either, partly because I don't really understand what he's doing until the very end. But uh, I do like Cronin, and he is the one that gets the meaningful kill in here after Broom has done his autopsy and shown that he's basically, yeah, just sawdust and moving clock parts. He puts himself back together and takes a head. Yeah, it's so freaky when he sits right up and he's got that plastic sheet over him and... Yeah, he puts his robot hand back on. His face is haunting. I mean, seriously, with those eyeballs and things, that is truly about as creepy as PG-13 can get in my mind. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised they wouldn't go with the eye stuff for, for Rasputin, but they'd get away with this face. But I don't understand the MPAA. I didn't know this was an R. I assumed that it was because, yeah, the imagery is just a little too stark. Again, I think that's Del Toro's trademark, that he really loves freakishness and yeah yeah nightbreed can be r-rated i don't know why this can be pg-13 but i'm glad because it gave them the audience that they needed to make this a modest hit but yeah this is pretty scary stuff i would not let young children watch this movie no that i have a story for next week but the girls wanted to see this one because they love that hellboy liked kitties i'm like nope this one is too scary for the both of you i mean this is really a, a horror movie almost it is and that's i think what i'm responding to i mean i really that has always helped even when the movies aren't very good like the doctor strange tv movie from the 70s if they can get that vibe then i usually get a hook in i mean i don't want hellboy to be a superhero i want him to yeah be dealing with lovecraftian gods i still kind of see this superhero-y but you know i can i put this and spawn and several of the marvel movies all in the same category and they're darker superheroes but they're super powered they're heroes. We've had this debate on the forums. When is a comic book movie a superhero movie and when is it not? So, Would you call Rasputin a supervillain then? Would he have just as good a time fighting Superman or Batman? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think he'd have a good time fighting Thor. He would fit into that kind of universe. Okay, yeah, good call. This whole movie has a bit of a Thor feel. I mean, with the romance subplot and the comedy. So much better, though. Agreed. But this is where he's going to monologue what he's doing as he's just about to kill Broom. He sort of pops up to say what the grand plan is. Yeah, he has this way of cameoing. He, I don't know if he's astrally projecting or what he's doing, but he like shows up and then disappears again. He appeared to Hellboy earlier, too. Yeah, and he does want Hellboy to know what he's up to. He does need Hellboy to find him so he could use his hand to open that gate. So yeah, normally, yes, monologuing is an awful idea if you're a villain, but here it kind of makes sense because they do need to lead him. They could actually bring the stone to him, but I guess it's more fun or 
Oh, can you imagine trying to get that through customs? Uh, yeah, I mean, it would be a problem, but we promise not to get too much into the whys and hows and logic, right? Del Toro <laughs> isn't, we're not going to. No, he wants Hellboy to go through another labyrinth. I just thought this place in Moscow was a sacred place and it had to happen there. We're told it's where the stone fell out of the sky, that this giant monolith fell on the czars, they kept it... And, yeah, I guess that was what got Rasputin into the old gods to begin with. That's what made him think, oh, I need to find the key to get that doorway open and bring OJ into this world. And so that's the plan, that Hellboy is going to go to Moscow with the team to avenge the murder of his father and bust into a cemetery and and raise the dead. I didn't know he could do this. I didn't either. That's kind of cool. This is straight from a single issue of Hellboy where he yeah, has a corpse tied to his back the entire time telling him where to go. But we do see this earlier. Like when we see Hellboy's bullets, they have silver shavings and garlic. Like they do play off of all that mythology. He carries a rosary around with them. So there is this sense of religion and ancient myths where, okay, he, he's got to find a good corpse that would know its way around this labyrinth that Rasputin built, I guess, when he was living in Moscow decades earlier. And yeah, he, he raises that corpse. And again, this is like, I love the practical effect here. I love how it looks like a puppet. It, it's just so offsetting this, this corpse that he's got to tow around with him. Ivan. Yeah. Ivan's fun. What happens to him? I, he kind of drops out of the picture. He falls down with one of the red shirt BPRD characters once they get inside. Oh, okay. Yeah, he yeah. literally falls out of the picture. But Okay. There's a lot of booby traps. It really does get back into feeling, again, like a Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. I was thinking a little Evil Dead with the trash-talking skeleton, though, because the skeleton <laughs> has some good one-liners. Go to hell. Why'd you wake me up? But this is where you also see Manning and Hellboy growing closer like they've had a very confrontational relationship the entire team is when they go into this labyrinth they all get separated early on and manning and hellboy hellboy saves him from cronin and in turn manning teaches him how to light a cigar for real (laughs) okay cubans you got to use a wood match (laughs) do you i i don't smoke cigars but i neither do i but i will believe jeffrey tambor i don't know how I feel about this development. I mean, my question is, and it's it's kind of rhetorical, is Jeffrey Tambor becoming a new father figure? Because if so, it kind of undermines Hellboy becoming a man and not needing one. And it's because he's instructing Hellboy how to light a cigar. It seems like, okay, you're replacing the professor in Hellboy's eyes, but I prefer to read it as Hellboy's gaining a grudging and more mature respect. Even if he doesn't always like his boss, they're growing to respect each other through this encounter. Yeah, that's how I've always read it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I don't feel like Tambor is anybody's father figure. He's the rule enforcer, and he's the stick in the mud, and we are never asked to like him. And he has the unfortunate job of having to lead a supernatural team 
while at the same time, you know, disguising them from the rest of the world. So, no, I don't feel like this is a character we're prone to like. We are on Hellboy's side in not liking him. But, yeah, we're seeing maturity in the fact that he can deal with him more civilly here towards the end. It's a small moment anyway. It's, it's again, worth pointing out who we're supposed to be seeing as his father figure is Myers, who's off with the Liz bumbling around and stumbles into the egg nest. It's where all of the Sams are hatching. You know, Hellboy's gonna, he's going to have to punch his way through the wall. He does a lot of punching at the end. One of the things I love is when Hellboy's punching Cronin, you get all those little gears just shooting out of his metal face. <laughs> that is fun. Myers and Liz are trapped with all the Samuels. This huge egg nest. We were told in America that, yeah, the BPRD took care of that. Like, we never see it. We're just told, oh, yeah, they vacuumed up all those eggs and destroyed them. But here's another huge nest. And I do love that, like, Hellboy, this is where you see, like, his desire for Liz. He will punch through a floor, stone floor, to get to her to save her. But she protects herself. Really, she's, this is her one moment. This is the one time that they actually needed Liz. Liz, for the most part, is sort of a pawn that she's going to be used to make Hellboy do something he doesn't want to but here in this moment she can burn all of the eggs and there's no chance for them replicating again after she goes nuclear I think the important thing is, though, she doesn't do that at first. Hellboy's in there fighting, and it's only when it looks like Hellboy's going to die that she decides to. I think this is a turning point for Liz, is that she wants to save Hellboy. She doesn't want him to die, so she asks Myers to hit her to set off her powers. And I love that moment, you should be running. I do like that. It's honestly probably my favorite moment for Liz in this movie. I find it also... A little interesting that she can't control the fire at all. She can't bring it or stop it. I'd taken her lack of control up until this point that she just can't stop it from coming when she gets emotional. I didn't realize she has to get emotional in order to flame on. It seems to come from anger when we see think about the bullies in the schoolyard making her go or... Rasputin kind of planted some magical thing in her head to make her explode in the hospital, but it does seem to be, as it typically is, I mean, I think it worked that way with Drew Barrymore, too. When she gets really mad, she burns you. But this sets up all the characters to be captured. Like, <laughs> Liz passes out, Hellboy passes out, and Rasputin and Ilsa show up and chain them up. Some religious imagery here. I think Hellboy, he almost looks like he's being crucified when we see him next. And this is the moment where he's given a choice. He can either not unlock the door and Liz will be dead to him, that she is in some kind of otherworldly state, or he can go get her and thus also allow OJ into our world. Yeah, I do like that, you know, because this is Hellboy having to make choices his devotion to Liz, he he makes the wrong choice. Like, he's going after Liz, but he kind of loses control of himself. Like, we'll see those horns grow back, and yeah, very legend with those massive horns on his head as he... He's got to unlock two doors, though, during this eclipse. And he unlocks that first one, and it really feels like something else has taken over. He has the crown of fire upon his head. He is not Hellboy. He is that demon that was prophesied, that was meant to come and create the apocalypse. Uh, Anang Un Rama, I think, is my poor attempt to to translate it. But yeah, he they Hellboy was the nickname. His real name is really scary and kind of like OJ's name. And he is one of them, after all. So he He's got to make a choice. Is he a man or is he an old one? One thing I found interesting is, yeah, the horns come out and 
it really transforms how he looks. I'm. Do you know, Jacob, if they altered his makeup to make him look more demonic in other ways than just growing those horns? They didn't say anything about the makeup, but, you know, his eyes seem to be glowing at this point. Mm-hmm. They, they did something to make him look different. His he- tats are, yeah, I mean, there's definitely just, he looks more like a classic demon with hellfire around him. I mean, he's just, he's scary looking. He's not a bit cute. I found it interesting they decided to have, like, flames engulfed between his horns when that happens, you know? We- yeah, it's a crown of fire, which, which, again, goes back to the Bible and Book of Revelation and I'm sure other Lovecraftian stuff or other myths. And it is the Bible, or at least a crucifix, that brings him back. That Myers' one contribution here is that he gets his hand free from a shackle. He still held on to Broom's rosary. Broom was throughout his life a Catholic. And so because he has that and throws it into the palm of Hellboy and it leaves a mark, it reminds him of Broom, it reminds him of man, and it reminds him that he doesn't need to open that door. Would the crucifix always burn him, or does it only burn him because he's all deviled out? I take it it's because he's deviled out. I mean, at this point, we see the tentacles of the old ones coming through the clouds. Like, he's pretty far gone at this point. The moon! The whole moon has disappeared and become the portal itself. I thought that was very cool. Again, we haven't had a lot of Lovecraft adapted to the screen. There's been some movies from the 70s that aren't very good, but... Reanimator. That's not really an old one story, but uh, The Thing, I think, is the closest we ever saw to that kind of creation. The John Carpenter movie, that creature with the tentacles that just kept morphing into other things, is probably the closest we've ever gotten up to this point. I'm going to say it. This is one better. This is the best Cthulhu we've ever had on screen. I'm going to say these tentacles popping out of the cloud. Yeah, it's better than this Cthulhu creature we're going to get at the very end. Like, I like that it remains in mystery what these things really are. Again, you can't ever see them or you'll lose your mind. And I like this alternate dimension that they're opening the portal to. It kind of looks like deep space. It kind of just looks weird with everything floating around and seeing the giant monsters that are there. And we saw it in the first scene. It was kind of being woken up. It's like, oh, I have some place to go. And the door gets slammed in his face. Yeah, it breaks out of its crystal prison here. Mm-hmm. It's a great visual. And of course... We don't want to see it destroy the Earth, but I kind of want to see it come here, you know? <laughs> oh, we do. I mean, there, as far as disaster porn goes, when the tentacles are coming down in the clouds, I couldn't be happier. I'm like, yes, so finally we see it. But, you know, this has to be a Hollywood movie. They're not going to end this movie. This cute, charming Ghostbusters world is not going to end with humanity dead and the old ones ruling over us all. That's that's not how it's going to go. So, yes, it follows formula here. And we have Hellboy being Hellman, choosing humanity, goring Rasputin with his horns. That was a nice touch. After he rips him off, like, I love that scene. And that is from the comic where he grabs those horns and just rips them off his head. So is this in the comic that his fist is a key to open this dimension and all that? Yeah, they changed some of the mythology, but this is a pretty close adaptation to that first miniseries. Yeah, he's got to use that arm to open up the realm. They could have killed Myers, though, right? He could have sacrificed his life in some way, and that would be a nice write-off for him here that... 
Or it could have been John Hurt. I feel like this is where John Hurt could have died. But instead, it just becomes kind of weird. The climax really was killing Rasputin this first time. The fact that he actually is a monster underneath and they're going to have another battle feels like a scene they didn't need to do. No, and I'm glad that it's a really quick one. It's not a very long fight. I would have been good with Rasputin getting stabbed by the horn, him bringing Liz back, and that being the end of the film. Yeah, I don't know why we have to have this all this nonsense with the grenade belt. They did bring up previously that every time Rasputin has been resurrected, there's that demon inside of him growing bigger. So I'm glad they pay that off in some way. But yeah, I kind of alluded to it in the boss summary is Hellboy kills Rasputin. And then a monster comes out, and Hellboy kills it too. You know, I wish that it was something more than just needing a bigger weapon to do it. Like if he had to accomplish something, get the fist back in the hole to close the gate, something like that versus just, you know, an ending that Arnold Schwarzenegger could have done. No, this ending, Tommy Lee Jones did this ending where he gets swallowed by the big cockroach in men in black and shoots his way out. Like Hellboy gets swallowed by the old God and the grenades blow up and he walks out of them. Yeah, I think that they just wanted to give Hellboy a bigger victory than he had before. That doing it as a demon didn't feel enough. We wanted to see the wisecracking, funny Hellboy also square off with a big monster. And so, yeah, we get it as comedy. But comedy after what we just had feels anticlimactic. And shouldn't his concerns be more with Liz? Like, Liz didn't get out of that dimension. She is stuck on the other side. So... You know, when he goes and whispers to her, we just have to take it on faith that this is a fairy tale and that love indeed can bring people back from the dead. I do love what Hellboy whispers to her, you know, let her go or I'll cross over and you'll be sorry. Like, that does seem like a very Hellboy thing to do. He's just taken on the old gods twice, more or less, and defeated them. I do like that. You know, I buy what he says here. I buy what he whispers into her and that it works because of what we've just seen. You know, Beauty and the Beast, I've read this whole romantic subplot is indeed these two rivals, a human and a beast going for this woman. And yeah, we always want Beast to be the winner here. And so, yeah, he has become both a man and the primary love figure for Liz. And does any of us feel bad for Meyer when Meyer looks at them and is all like, oh, I'm sad. He wasn't that invested. No, I don't feel bad for him at all. I'm not sure Hellboy could get another date. I'm sure Myers could go have 20 more (laughs) dates this week. So he just had less at stake here. This was Hellboy's one true love. This was Myers' new crush. Arnie's usually the big rom-com fan. I love what Del Toro has done here by taking a devil who fire can't hurt and a fire starter who just starts on fire and makes them boyfriend and girlfriend. This is not in the comic. They never hook up. And I love this about Del Toro's Hellboy universe. Like, it makes so much sense on, like, a a romance level in a weird, freakish monster world that I buy into it. Like, I like that Del Toro's in charge of this because, yeah, he would totally think about putting these two together. So do they not even have a romantic attraction in the comics? Nope. Totally made up for the film. And yeah, I enjoy that part. Yeah, no, I think it does work as a romance as well as an action movie and a Lovecraft movie. I think all around, yeah, we're seeing a successful launching of a franchise. Well, then I guess there's no suspense when I ask Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Hellboy? 
Jacob. Yeah, I got into the Hellboy comics because of this movie. Like, I had heard of them, but then I saw this movie. I'm like, oh, I need to read these. And now that might be the biggest, like, continuous run I have of any comic is Hellboy and BPRD and Abe Sapien. Like, all the spinoffs that Mike Mignola's done. I, I have them all because I love this universe that Del Toro introduced to me. You know, wh- someone asked me on Facebook after Civil War, that review, which I was kind of lukewarm on. They're like, what does it take to please you? And I said variety. And that's what I get with Hellboy here. Like, this is such a different kind of comic book movie. It's part horror, part pulp with you know, World War II and Nazis and all the mythology and and just weird freaks. Like, there's so much going on, and this could have been a mess of the of a film. I, I don't think it's perfect. I do think the storytelling gets a bit clunky at times, but because Del Toro's in charge of it, and this is the kind of world he wishes he lives in, it works here. Like, it, it he doesn't have a huge budget, but with the budget he does have, he makes it work. So, yeah, this is a solid recommend for me. Yeah, I think it's competitive with the Men in Black series. I can't think of anyone in that series that is better than this movie, whatever its problems are. And there are a few, some occasionally dicey special effects, an odd plot twist, some meandering. I think it's been improved greatly from the director's cut to its original version, or at least it's improved by me having watched it twice. And I feel like, yeah, it's got a winning character. That's always what's so important when you're launching a franchise like this. You need to like Will Smith. You need to like your central character that's going into a weird world. The twist that he's actually a freak too makes it even more fun and and perfect for Del Toro. Again, Del Toro is a director who is always preferring the monsters to the humans. Or rather, the monsters in Del Toro movies are the humans and the heroes are the creatures. And so who better to tell a superhero team of creatures than Del Toro? I'm really encouraged by what we see here and think it could be even better next week. Yeah, it's... I don't know if it's better than the first Men in Black, but it's certainly the best of the Men in Black sequels, right? (laughs) You just will not let go that Men in Black 1 is like some great movie. Well, it is. Donors can listen and find out, but... Does that mean we're going to get a 21 Jump Street Hellboy Men in Black crossover eventually, if this is a sequel? There will be no Hellboy after next week, but we'll discuss that next week. (laughs) But I'm giving this movie a strong recommend. I really have a fun time, and I, I just can't credit enough the actors. We didn't talk much about... David Hyde Pierce, but I love his delivery here as Abe Sapien. I mean, it's Niles all over again being the kind of smart bookworm, but he also has a bravery with this character that Niles never would exhibit. And Ron Perlman owns the screen. I mean, it takes a special kind of actor to be able to emote and to work with all kinds of things. He has action, he has romance, he has comedy, and he has some sadness when the professor dies. And to do it all and make me forget he's under pounds and pounds of latex. The cast makes this movie zing and help smooth out some of the bumps in the script. And I love Guillermo del Toro. I just, I mean, we've reviewed Pacific Rim, Blade 2. I watch Almost everything he does. I've yet to get to... You've seen Crimson Peak yet? I have yet to get to Crimson Peak, but it's on my list. But 
the script is not bulletproof. The characterizations, the makeup effects, all of it carries it through. I have such a fun time when I watch this film, and I do watch it fairly regularly. So yeah, it's a strong recommend. I really do like this. Not enough to pick up a comic, though, and especially the more you tell me, Jacob, about how the comic is different, the more I'm glad I never did try a comic. But this movie, it was number one the first week it came out, but... It didn't do great after that. It was considered really a failure, but because of its life as on the DVD rental shelf, it it got us a sequel. Right. And I'm curious to revisit that. I had a not entirely positive reaction to it when I saw it back in theaters in 2008, but having just come off the high of this movie, I'm hoping for the best next week. And in the meantime, donors at our gold level, which is $25 or more, We are really hitting our stride. Our second 1986 sci-fi film comes out on Friday, Invaders from Mars, the Toby Hooper remake. That's true. It came out early June 1986. I happen to be, I think, the big fan of it. I hope you can join us Friday to learn all about what they changed and what they kept the same in Toby Hooper's somewhat maligned uh, remake. It is our fifth donation review this spring. So if you donate right now, silver level, $10 or more, you get the Men in Black trilogy, and later you're going to get Independence Day and Independence Day Resurgence. Gold, you're going to get the Men in Black trilogy and last Friday's review of Critters, and then this Friday, Invaders from Mars, as we go through the other 86 films of Night of the Creeps, Space Camp. Labyrinth. We talked lots about labyrinths here. We'll we'll get into one. Big Trouble in Little China. And then if you donate Platinum, which is $35 or more, you're also going to hear us bust some ghosts as yet another demon-fighting team. I mean, we've referenced Ghostbusters several times in this podcast. Now you can hear us actually review Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2, and Ghostbusters New. I'll be honest, one of the crossovers I always wanted was a Hellboy Ghostbusters crossover, which I guess we're not going to get that. Thor's going to cross over with them this time. (laughs) Or at least Chris Hemsworth. Venkman and Hellboy sharing a beer would be something I would pay a lot of money to see. Hopefully you'll be able to donate and join us for those discussions. Yep, Bustin' makes me feel good and podcasting makes me feel good. And I could only podcast thanks to the support of donors. So you can find out all the details by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, go to hell, boy. What makes a man a man? A friend of mine once wondered. Is it his origins, the way he comes to life? I don't think so. It's the choices he makes, not how he starts things, but how he decides to end them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Hellboy Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. What have you done? Guess we're out. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Second date. No time. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Hellboy movies with other listeners. If there's trouble, all us freaks have is each other.
And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman vs. Superman, all Marvel's Avenger films, Spider-Man, X-Men, Blade, Watchmen, Daredevil, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. I hate those comic books. They never get the eyes right. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I black out after each episode, sometimes for hours. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Well, come on in. Meet the rest of the family. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Let this remind you why you once feared the dog. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We die, and the world will be poor for it. Now Playing's Hellboy Retrospective series is edited by Heath and Arnie. What horrible will could keep such a creature as this alive? Now playing credit narration by Brock. We're going to talk all night because I'm really sleepy. Now playing is not affiliated with Dark Horse Comics, Revolution Studios, or Columbia Pictures. Hellboy and all its contents are the intellectual property of those companies, and no infringement is intended. Oh, what? Are you threatening me? Because I think I can take you. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Hey, I can be discreet if I want to be. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Enganza Media Incorporated. Anything else you need? Not from you. Well, good night. Goodbye. Carol? Carl? Carol? Anyone know Carol Roden? And Nazi assassin Carl Ruprecht Carl Ruprecht Cronin. Yeah, I could say Ruprecht, but I couldn't say Cronin, (laughs) damn it. I'm also thinking of... What the hell is that Pearl Harbor guy's name? I always yeah. forget. Josh Hutchins. Josh Hartnett. Josh. Did, did they really think Rupert Everett was going to, or did they really think that Rupert Evans was going to be somebody? And Big And Trump. Night of the Creeps. I said Night of the Creeps. No, I know, but you said it out of order, which is kind of confusing. Yeah. <laughs> That's because I didn't know. I knew I couldn't do it in order. So I just decided to intentionally start at the end.